Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's, uh, of course, your boy Jonathan Macri with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School Podcast. I told you at the beginning of the summer that I wasn't going to be doing a lot of pods um, over these off-season months, and that if I was going to do a pod, it was only going to be because it was a guest that was worth it. And, cause, you know, like i, I got to be honest with you all. I'm enjoying the hell out of my summer. It's nice. I'm not complaining, but... If I am going to do a podcast, it is going to be with someone special, and um, someone came out with a piece this week that I read, and I'm like, this hit the nail on the head for me, and I'm sure it hit the nail on the head for a lot of people in terms of what we really have to be thinking about with this team moving forward. Um, And of course, I expect nothing else from this person because he's one of the best writers out there. Of course, I'm talking about Moke Hamilton of The Athletic. Moke, I will ask you um how your summer is going although with as you just told me your wedding is less than a month away i have a feeling (laughs) i know how your summer has been going and it's probably been been pretty busy how are you man yeah i'm doing very well and thanks a lot for the warm introduction uh you you don't say that to everybody you have on right like you you literally mean that just for me right I uh, actually everyone that you have one is not your favorite, right? I insult. <laughs> uh, I mean, ask like you know, like Jeremy Cohen, some of the guys from Posting and Toasting. I'll I'll openly insult them before I introduce them. So I promise <laughs> you, I promise you that I reserve that introduction for a select few. How about we say that? Okay. Well, I I greatly appreciate that, Jonathan. And um, you know what I'll what I'll tell you, man, about you know what you guys have built over at Nick's Film School. I just I think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, I think that the community that you guys have is great. But what I like most about what you guys do is the the educational aspect of it as well. You know what I mean? Because I think I think that what Twitter and what the dig- digital media and the rise of social media has done over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. It's kind of given everybody a voice and it's given fans an opportunity to kind of be more interactive with one another. But there are times where I think that the fans that are out there with the voices and interacting with people kind of lack some of the education behind some of the nuances and the minutiae of the game. Well, so I respect I, I respect what you guys have been doing in that regard. Well, first of all, thank you. That's it's way too kind. And and second of all, it's actually a perfect transition because I, I think, you know, part of the reason I do this and part of the reason JB, you know, does what he does um, with the film stuff is we, we feel exactly like you just said. There's a lot of people with a lot of voices out there, but the game of basketball and and how teams are run and built it's not it's not black or white it's nuanced and um i know we didn't feel like there was a lot of that out there however um you are one of the exceptions to the rule and you you always have been and um it's it's actually a perfect lead in because so i read your most recent piece um you wrote um you keyed in on on scott perry's draft record but really i think it was an overarching view of kind of maybe some of the lessons the Knicks learned this, you know, over the last couple months and, and what they should take from that moving forward. Right. And I, I read it and I'm like, my God, it's, it, I, it's the first piece that I, ha- that I haven't written myself that I've read. And I'm like, thank you. Um, and then I went into our Slack channel because we're, you know, we're big time at Knicks Film School. We have a Slack channel. <laughs> 
And um, a couple of people were like, man, you know, Moke, Moke was harsh. I'm like, am I, I, so I went back and read it again. I'm like, this, this isn't harsh. This is like, it's accurate. Um, and I consider, like, I try to look at the glass half full, you know, but I also, I know real when I, when I see it. So my, my first thing I wanted to ask you is, did you feel you were being harsh with the piece? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And it's funny because when you're, when you're critical, there's always an opportunity for somebody to take it as you being harsh. Because you, you can't be critical, right? You can't, you're right. not allowed to be. <laughs> exactly. Or yeah. like, oh, like, oh, you're, you're a Nets fan. Like, you know, it's like, bro, like, I'm a fan of everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I, I love everybody. I love everything. I love every NBA team. Like, I am here simply to try to provide a voice and perspective. You know what I mean? And, and, and a viewpoint and a vantage point. And your job as a, a media professional, in, in most instances, is to have a nuanced, intelligent, analytical perspective of the things that you observe. And when I look at the Nick franchise, you know, I don't have anything against Scott Perry. I actually happen to think that Scott Perry is the right man for the job. I think I've uh, been on the record as, as saying that pretty consistently since he was hired. I, I think you said that to us a few, you know, at the beginning of the season, yeah. Yeah, and and I think what kind of stinks about it for Nick fans is saying patience to Nick fans. It's it's a difficult thing to do because I mean the team has not really been very good for about twenty years now, right? And the but the thing that 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 happens that I think a lot of people kind of lose sight of is every time you pull the plug and you get rid of Glenn Grunwald and you hire Phil Jackson and you get rid of Phil and then you bring in every time you do that, you're basically hitting the reset button. And every guy that comes into the franchise, every new head coach, every new GM, every new president, you got to kind of hit the reset button and give that guy at least some time to get his house in order and to try to build the thing his way. And what you can say now, after a few years of, of Scott Perry, at least to this point, is that he has not done business the way that his predecessors have. You know what I mean? And as long as he sticks to his guns and he sticks to the plan that he and Steve Mills outlined and have continued to outline, then I think they'll be OK. The real question then for me becomes, OK, you get Chris Tapps Porzingis fourth in 2015. He's no longer with the team. You got Frank Nilakina eighth in 2017. We're not really sure what he is. Not Scott Perry's pick, though. Yeah. Right. So we can't really pin that on him. But. When you look at R.J. Barrett, you look at Kevin Knox, and you look at Mitchell Robinson, and I'll even put Alonzo Trier in that conversation as well. These now become the guys that make the nucleus of Scott Perry's Knicks. So I want to see what these guys look like in another year or two from now. You know and, what I mean? And I think he's on the clock in that regard, and that's really what I wanted to point out in the piece. And, and you and you did so really, um, you did so really well. And the 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 point. You made a, a number of points that I, I want to just highlight, and and the first one is this: building. I think some fans have a misperception about when you say build through the draft. They're they're like, well, it's a superstars league. You only win with superstars, and you made the very clear point that I, for some reason I think gets lost on people, which is that, <laughs> and we learned it this summer: superstars are not going to come to your team unless you show that you can draft and and build organically. Um, to a certain extent, and, and then yeah. you, you know you get to a, a a point, and you know, and you made the point up front, which I, which is where I, I think people thought you were being harsh, where you said that the garden, just the the garden being the garden, 
isn't enough. Well, yeah, it's not enough anymore. But no, like, and, sorry, yeah. but no shit. It's like we, if if there was ever any doubt about that, you know, we we learned that this summer. Um, I I personally did, wasn't under any illusions going into it, but um, so you went through his his track record with with some different teams, um, and I I think you came out. Well, I don't know how how would you put how, what you know. I don't want to have to you know make you give him like a letter grade, but do you yeah. What, what, how do you assess him as a drafter um, at this point? Having he's been in the game for you know twenty years, what, what, what would you say? Yeah, so that that I think is a really good question. And what I would do is I would definitely preface that by pointing out something that I did that I did say in the piece, which was that it's difficult to pin one guy on one guy in a front office. You know what I mean? Yep. Front offices, like obviously, there's always going to be a director of scouting. But most scouting departments. So basically you have a GM. Most most NBA teams operate in this in this way. Right. You'll have a general manager. He himself. He's not usually on the road scouting players. He'll have at least one assistant. Right. Some some teams will have cap guys. Some teams may have three full time scouts. Okay. then aside from that they may have four or five guys that they pay a consultant fee to go and scout games for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And will those so, guys be, I, I don't mean to cut you off, will those guys be ones that are working for like multiple NBA teams simultaneously and they'll like kind of write up a report on the game and then, you know, give it into the, the front offices that are paying them for it? Yeah, from from what I understand, a lot of, a team like the Knicks, this I don't know. I'll preface that by saying this, but I think, a lot of scouts, at least the ones that I've interacted with, kind of work on a retainer basis with one team in particular. Okay. So if they're working for this team, it'll be for three months or for six months. You know what I mean? It'll be for, you know, a certain region, right? Um, the south southeast region of the United States, or they might have a scout that's going to be focusing his energies on the Pacific Northwest or whatever. You know what I mean? But I only say all that to say, by the time a prospect's name even gets on a team's radar in December or January, they they're probably have already been at least six to eight guys who've gotten eyes on the kid before gotcha. he even gets on Scott Perry's radar. Gotcha. Okay. So 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 when the Knicks draft, I mean R.J. Barrett, you know, I would kind of even put him aside because I think he was, well. I was going to say, I think he's the only guy you could have taken in that situation, but I'm not even going to say that. My, my my point is just that by the time he gets drafted by the Knicks, there were already eight to ten people in Scott Perry's ear giving opinions on him. So it's difficult to say, oh, well, Scott Perry is the one who decided to take R.J. Barrett. RJ Barrett. Now, Perry deserves what I call per se credit for being the leader of the organization that makes that move. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. But I only say all that to say when I look back in history and I see that the Detroit Pistons drafted Amir Johnson with the 56th pick, I can't necessarily say, oh, well, that was because of Scott Perry. Sure. But what, but what I can do is I can observe a trend that has appeared to follow Perry for 19 years and make an educated determination as to what I think of the things that his fingerprints happen to be on. Now, all of that said, Jonathan, if you're asking me to give him a grade, 
based on what I've seen and what I observed, I would probably put him at I probably at least a B. You know, I think I'd put him at a B. Um, I think that I could make the argument that he deserves a B plus, but I feel more comfortable with the B just because when I look at the track record, when I look at the names, when I look at the history, I see a lot of high quality pieces that were wins in terms of where they were drafted, right? So Aaron Aflalo, uh, I, I, if I recall correctly, Chris, Aaron Aflalo. Chris Middleton, I think you said too, was in the piece. Chris, Chris Middleton, yeah. And, and of course now, you know, you can always dig a little deeper and get more data and always form a counter argument for every argument, right? So Chris Middleton drafted number 39th. I want to say that was in 2013 or something like that. But he was traded by the Pistons. Yep. So so the question then, oh, well, you pick the guy, but you fail to develop him and you end up getting rid of him. So do you deserve credit for, for, for seeing the future with him but not being able to bring it out, right? So these are all questions that you can argue. You can look at the glasses being half empty or half full, right? You can say, oh, well, I'd rather have the guy than, than to not have even had an opportunity to kind of harness that talent. That's, that's on you, you know, depending on how you want to look at it. The way that I look at it is that you saw the future with him. You took a chance on him, and he ended up being a very impactful player. I give you credit for being on the team that decides to make that pick. And you just you just reminded me of my favorite line from your piece, which is about Oladipo being the best player drafted by the, the Perry uh, front office in Orlando. And then you note that he was traded with Sabonis uh, in exchange <laughs> for Serge Ibaka. Orlando appears to have lost that trade. It, it's uh, nice. But that was kind. <laughs> nice, nice, nice bit of understated this uh, there, Moke. I, I appreciated that. that. Yeah. Um, but, but again, and, and I mean, like, you know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to write 3,000 words. You don't want to go off on too many tangents, sure, especially yeah. when you're someone like me who can be a bit long-winded, you know. But again, like, you have to kind of understand everything that goes on in an organization when certain decisions are made. So at that point, when that decision was made to trade Oladipo, number one, he hadn't become the Terminator, right? He became the Terminator when he got to Indianapolis. I think that did something for him uh, as far as his psyche and certainly his body, right? He just took his career much more seriously once he got there. So if he stays in Orlando, there's no telling what he might have been. Aside from that, the other thing that's important is that Orlando's front office was fraying for a little while. They were having a lot of issues there, and it ultimately resulted in Rob Hennigan's staff, of which Scott Perry was a part, being fired in 2017. So for, for I, I guess that becomes relevant because now the question then becomes, okay, well, was Scott Perry the one that said, hey, let's trade Victor Oladipo? For all we know, that might have been a desperation move that the franchise was making to try to get themselves into the playoffs because they knew the clock was ticking on them. And for all we know, Scott Perry could have had a heated argument with Rob Hennigan saying, no, Oladipo is going to be an all-star. Don't trade him. And Hennigan says, well, I'm your boss. And I say this is what we're going to do. Disagreements like this in life happen all the time in NBA front offices. They're actually much more common than, than any of us know. And and actually, it leads me to another question I wanted to ask you because you've you know you've been covering you know this team for for I mean you cover all the teams but you've been covering this team in particular. You, I know you pay attention to them. It seems like at the very least, um, Mills, Perry, and I would even throw Fisdale even in there um, have kind of been 
in lockstep for you know since the day that Fisdale came aboard. Um, and I, I don't know that. I mean, look, I, I I always try to look on the bright side. I admit that when you know as a as a fan of the team, I I don't know that enough gets gets made of that. Um, from your sense, I mean, how important is it that everybody seems to be on the same page and like the path that they wanted to take um, this summer? It's everything. It's everything. Uh, when you look at the most success. So first, as far as the Knicks are concerned, the Knicks front office, when you go back and you look at the history of what has happened in this front office. And, and first, let me just say, I have covered the league at a, at a national level, but born and raised in New York, baby. That's why I love you, man. So I've been I, I've been watching this team. Since you know, I was on my daddy's lap. You know, watching Patrick Ewing, you know, with the turnaround jump shot, man. So I'm I'm here for you guys, man. I've been here for a long time. But um, what I what I will say about that is it's everything, you know, being being on, on on the same page. And what I would do for people that have been watching this team, I mean, at this point, if you're, you know, if you're 30, 35 years old, maybe even a little younger, um, you know, you remember. Dave Checkets, you know what I mean? You remember Ernie Grunfeld, you know, you remember Stan, uh, Jeff Van Gundy. And uh, since, I want to say since that, since the front office, since Pat Riley left, and, you know, since, uh, you know, the controversy with with Dave Checkets and Ernie Grunfeld and all those guys, I want to say somewhere around 2000, right when Patrick Ewing was traded away, the front office and the bench kind of became very disjointed. You know, if you look at it, you know, you have a president that was a part of the prior regime and the general manager wasn't someone that he hired. Right. But yeah. that general manager brought in his own coach and then the GM leaves. But the coach is still there and a new GM comes and he gets rid of the coach. And now the coach comes. But now the president is different. You know what I mean? So yeah. the point is, there hasn't really been, uh, I guess, fluid. There, there hasn't really been a unified contingent with the front office and the bench for a long time at Madison Square Garden. And I think that that more than anything else is what Steve Mills has accomplished. You know, you got Mills, you got Perry and you got Fisdale Jonathan. And to your point, I think that the three of those guys, it's safe to say they come as close to thinking with one mind and acting with one accord as I've seen having been around this team uh, as a journalist now for about, how long has it been? About 10 years, eight years or so. And based on what I've heard, people that have been working in the garden for a very, very long time observe that as well. And I think it's everything to answer your question. You look at teams like the San Antonio Spurs, who are obviously the gold standard in the NBA. But you also look at some younger teams, you know, the Golden State Warriors. You look at the the Utah Jazz. You know, you look at some of the more the successful, best, the best teams, yeah, sure, the, be, the, the best teams, and and there always is. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks are in that class as well. There's always a unity of thought and uh, a, a cohesiveness about the front office and the bench that you need to run a successful organization. And um, if nothing else, I do think the Knicks have that right now. The question then just becomes whether these guys are actually smart enough and good enough to do the job. Well, I'm gonna I want to get back to that in a, in a second. We'll we'll end with that. But you brought up Dallas and you mentioned KP earlier. Um, me going into this season um, and and really 
for, beyond, you know, um, for the foreseeable future. The whole KP thing, and I, I've defended that trade, and I'll continue to defend that trade. What I will continue to not defend is the fact that they let the relationship um, sour to the point where, you know, he didn't he didn't want to be part of the organization, um, and he was kind of gung ho about New York. And look, we can. We don't have to get into KP and his personality, whether it was a good fit for New York. Maybe it was not so a good fit for New York. Um, but I, from here on in, my most important thing is do R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, Kevin Knox, you know, those are obviously the three biggest names right now. Whoever they draft probably this year because it's going to be another good pick. The, the important young pieces that they want to build around, do they – Take pride in being Knicks. Do they want to be a part of the of the the group that wants to turn this franchise around, as opposed to starting to get wandering eyes um, at the first moment? Like, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not buying into this. I think that's the most important thing, more than the talent level of the. I mean, obviously, talent matters and and coaching matters and all that stuff matters. Do you think that I'm? Am I putting too much? On that, or you know, because I, I wonder, was KP really just an isolated thing, or is this something that I, as a fan, need to kind of be on the lookout for now? Like, can we get our guys to buy in and want to be a part of this thing from now on? Well, that's a great question. That's a great, great question. And the important thing to realize about Porzingis is, you know, uh, there's, um, you know, once an apple. Yeah, you hear sirens? I got some sirens going on outside. I don't know what's Perhaps going on. it's appropriate that the sirens, maybe it's an ambulance. <laughs> maybe KP tripped and, uh, no, I won't make a, won't make a joke. But, <laughs> so, one, once an apple goes bad, you know, like, you can't, you can't make a rotten ap- apple good again. Like, I, you can I cut off it. the bad part, you yeah. know what I mean? But, so as far as Porzingis is concerned, there are some people that kind of have the perspective of saying, oh, well, Scott Perry deserves blame for not being able to repair the relationship. But let's just be fair to him and David Fisdale and also say, well, you know what? That relationship was fractured before they got there, right? That didn't really happen on their watch. 100%. So so you got to be fair to them in that regard. As far as Porzingis is concerned, you know, I've heard heard a bunch of different things from a bunch of different people. I don't really know what's true. What I do think – everyone needs to kind of be careful of though is that the nick organization has always been one that was very very concerned and is very concerned with public perception and with what the narrative is that the masses believe things that are said publicly by the nick organization are not usually done accidentally they're usually done because the knicks want to have their side of the story out there What I think is a bit of, and I don't want to say injustice, but what's unfortunate in this whole thing is that Porzingis has sort of suggested that he would give, quote unquote, his side, and he hasn't done that. And I think him not doing that on one hand, well, it could just be him taking the high road. But on the other hand, it could be because some of these things that we hear about him not really being that good of a guy, like maybe they're true. You know, like we're left to kind of wonder that because he himself is not telling us what he thinks. So until he does that, I think that you just I mean, you don't really have a choice but to just move on. For sure. And with that being said, you have a collection of guys here now on this team that have a chance to be really, really good in this league. 
And I kind of did something that I know Nick fans probably didn't appreciate in pointing to to the brilliance of Sean Marks and his staff there in Brooklyn. But one thing you got to give those guys is the fact that they found talent, they harnessed it, and they developed it across the board from from Joe Harris to Jarrett Allen. You know what I mean? To Rodion's Kuduch, to to Karis LeVert, you know? Can I just say there's... There's not a single thing wrong with, like, with pointing that out, and I think if yeah. I got, if I get one one thing into it with Knicks fans a lot, it's when I say nice things about the Nets. I mean, like you can't you can't deny that they've done good things at this point. I mean, I, right. I'm, I'm not saying they're, they're God's gift, like I, some people make them out to be, but there's nothing wrong with what you're saying, Moke. That's all I, I want to point out. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm sure Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson appreciate that as well. <laughs> I'm sure they um, care a lot. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, the point is it's a blueprint. You know, it's a blueprint yeah. that, that they laid out. And, and I will also say, again, going back to the Victor Oladipo example real quick, it's not as simple as picking a guy and then he becomes like this superstar player. There's a lot of different things. Like picking the guy is just half the battle. It's kind of like, you know, if you if you listen to music, right? You know, Jay-Z goes into the studio and he'll record a track. But when you record the track, like that's usually just the beginning. You know what I mean? Like you're usually going to harmonize vocals, right? You got to get an engineer to properly mix the track. You know what I mean? You you probably you might go in there and you might say, oh, man, that second verse was kind of weak. You know, I think I think I might be able to to do it better. So I'm going to go back and re-record the second verse. Like it's a process. Becoming a superstar in the NBA is a process. And sometimes a young player like a Victor Oladipo needs the humbling of the fact that he's now traded two times. Like he might need that to light a fire under him. You know what I mean? Sure. A guy like a D'Angelo Russell. If D'Angelo Russell doesn't go through the tribulations that that he went through in L.A., who knows if he becomes the player that he became with the Nets? So I only say all that to say there's a lot of things that have to happen and a lot of good fortune. Things have to work out for a player like an R.J. Barrett to go from being a great collegiate player to being a perennial all-star at the NBA level. Do I think it can happen? Yeah, I do. But... The Nick organization has to do its part for these kids to help them fulfill their potential. And that can't be lost. So, let, perfect place to to end up because this is what I I wanted to ask you to 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 finish the conversation is I have made the argument that the Knicks front office Scott Perry and 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 Mills, but I think this is really from Perry. I think he's a guy that bets on talent, and he believes that if you put talent in a in a the right kind of situation for that talent to grow then you know a duck good things will happen i think the way that they went about this summer was this is their belief that this is the best way for their young talent to grow to create an ultra competitive environment where the young guys are going to not only have good examples um but guys who are going to provide them legitimate competition for minutes but at the same time nobody they brought in with the exception of i would say you know, Julius Randles and, and maybe um, Marcus Morris are so good that like, okay, this guy needs to get, you know, 25, 30 minutes a night. He's always talked about how he doesn't believe in tanking. I, I, I will die believing they wanted to go and, and win closer to 30 games last year as opposed to the 17 that they won. Um, whether that was smart or not, you know, remains to be seen. This is what I think they believed in, in these signings. They wanted to create, you know, a roster that's 15 deep, um, 
and you know let let's let's see what happens. I've also argued that this puts a hell of a lot of pressure on Fisdale. So I guess well I'll end it with like kind of a, a two parter. What are your what are your thoughts on on that plan? And um, do you think like I, I think Fisdale might have if not the, the toughest job in the NBA? It's it's up there this season. Um, how do you think he's gonna he's gonna handle it? Well, as far as the summer is concerned, I think that I think they missed an opportunity. Okay. To be honest with you, and. I don't remember offhand right now, but but one of the things that Sean Marks did and one of the things that Sam Hinkie did as well. And let's remember that the Sixers, who are also implicated in the piece, they they had scores of first round picks and, and second round picks and stuff like that. They, they exercised in some cases and in other cases they used as currency. The way that they were able to build that treasure trove of picks was by using the cap space that they had as currency on the NBA's trade market. For sure. So there, there are players out there that, oh, the team is $6 million over the luxury tax. The guy has a $9 million deal. It's a one-year deal. Hey, Knicks, you want to absorb this contract for us? They say, oh, yeah, or Sixers, you know, yeah, we'll do it. You just got to give us two second-round picks. Okay, done, right? And that's how they, they kind of built that treasure trove of, of draft picks. I think the Knicks missed an opportunity in that uh, in not doing that, I should say, because there were players out there. Mo Harkless is one that immediately comes to mind, and I think there was another one as well. I don't remember right now. Yeah, but it was when Mo I saw, and, and Iguodala were the two were the two guys that netted firsts. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 when I look at that, I'm saying, man, like those two guys probably could have fit on this team, and you probably could have gotten something for your trouble, you know. But the Knicks didn't take advantage of that opportunity. Um, maybe it's because Scott Perry is smarter than all of us, and maybe it's because he has plans for the guys that they did end up signing. What what I feel about the the idea of signing a bunch of guys to a one year deal and essentially kicking the can down the street, that's not the way to build a winning environment in the NBA. Because what happens invariably when you have guys brought in on one-year contracts, is they're thinking about their next contract. Every player is just an expired contract away from being in China, like Lance Stevenson. So, so, <laughs> oh, when you, so when you have guys, when you have six or seven guys coming to a team, all of whom are on one-year contracts, it immediately creates an adversarial atmosphere in the locker room because these guys are competing against one of uh, these guys are competing against one another for minutes and for the affections of the coach and for the highlight reels and that is a dynamic that you often see in NBA locker rooms but not usually with six guys who all expect to be playing 25 minutes a game who all are competing against one another for the next deal if you have a couple of guys on three-year deals one guy in a two-year deal, some younger guy, some older guy. If you have more of a mix and more of a variance among the personnel, it's a little easier to manage that type of situation. So, so generally speaking, I don't, I don't think that signing a bunch of guys on effectively one-year deals is a good idea. But if your master plan is to trade those guys to contenders closer to the deadline or what have you, then I think it makes a little more sense. So that's why I say maybe Perry's smarter than all of us and maybe – he has sort of calculated all of that already, you know. Um, and then the other quick point I'll make about that 
is what the Nets have shown us is that if Anthony Davis, if things don't work out in, in L.A., and Anthony Davis says, you know what, man, this this ain't this this Lakers thing ain't really it. You know, I think I need to change the scenery. Odds are Anthony Davis is going to want to go look in a place where there is at least evidence of a foundation being built. You know what I mean? And I don't think having five or six guys on one year contracts who you're depending on to win games for you. I don't think that's the easiest way to build that foundation. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I agree, I agree with you. So that's you. how I feel. Generally. No, I, I think it's – listen, it's a good point in that it's not easy, and which is why I, I kind of – I'll beat this drum until the season opens and, and then into the season that I think it really – it makes Fisdale's job really, really tough. I, I yeah. The one thing I, I do want to ask you, how much do you think the fact that all of these guys do have a team option for the second year, do you think that plays into it at all? Or do you think it's it's, you know, not – that big of a, a, a deal breaker uh deal breaker for who no in terms of just like if a guy is on a true one-year deal you know yes i i agree this kind of maybe the selfish tendencies that you worry about are more likely to um you know rear their rear their head but if there's a possible you know given that the free agent class in this upcoming summer is not um you know all that great other than potentially anthony davis um i i wonder if the guys are more under the mentality of like, look, if I go out and play the right way, um, you know, the Knicks have a pretty good chance of bringing me back. And then I get, you know, all that's coming to me. That's something yeah. that's been in the back of my mind. I don't know. I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah. Well, I think for the Knicks, it's, 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 it's great to have that option. You know, like, I mean, if I'm, if I'm a team, like I would always want to have the team option, you know, sure. the, the, the player generally is going to look at it as a one year contract. So I think the – so word that I'm looking for. I think the mentality that he has going into the season, whether it's a one-year contract or a one-year contract with an, a team option for a second year, I think the mentality is exactly the same. Okay. Um, I think the only difference for him is that he knows if he balls out that he's probably going to be brought back next year as opposed to getting like a max deal from the Sacramento Kings next summer or what have you. Yeah. But in any event – I still think every day when he's in the locker room taping up his ankles and putting on his under armor and all that in the back of his mind, he's just like, man, you know, I got to I got to make sure that I perform so that they pick up the option as opposed to, man, I got to make sure I perform so I can get a contract next season. You know, Um, and I'm not going to name a name, but I will tell you that there was one there's one player that was on the team last year who's not with the team anymore. I guess I shouldn't have told you that because that kind of helps you narrow it down a little bit. I, I, won't, but, I won't ask you a follow-up question. I'll, I'll leave it to the listeners <laughs> well, to try to figure I out. I will tell you that this guy had doubts that his uh, that he would be back with the team okay. this season. And every single day, his contract is what was on his mind. And his future was what was on his mind. You know what I mean? And it's difficult for a player to invest in a team or invest in an organization emotionally and mentally when they just feel like they're a stopgap or a mercenary. So I think that's the downside to one year contract, one year contract, one plus one. one. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I think that's the downside to it. It's just that you're not going to get the the unity and the camaraderie that you really need in the locker room. And you're not going to get guys believing in your coach and believing in your front office if that is what most of the guys in that locker room are being subjected to. 
that makes sense. It, it, no, it makes perfect sense. It's a it's a really good point, and it speaks to the fact that um, for this to work, I, I I do think they they better hope that the guys that they picked are you know we. We keep hearing they're, you know, these are good vets. They're pros, pros, all that good stuff. Well, you know, that'll no, be that, that. That should be said. That should be said. And that, not to cut you off, and yeah. I know you probably want to get out. In no, a no, or please. But, but that should be said. That's not something that I said, and and I do want to go on record as saying that Taj Gibson, Alfred Payton, Julius Randle, like the one thing I don't think you'll find. Anyone in the know, whether they be in the media or on the uh, pro personnel, player personnel side of things, I don't think you'll find many guys that will tell you that these guys are not serious professionals and that these guys are serious about about being players. You know, some guys are in the NBA for the lifestyle. You know, they were in the NBA for the Louis Vuitton bags and for the bottles in the clubs and stuff like that. Some guys are. These guys are not among that class these guys are ballers these guys are players and in many instances they feel like they just haven't really gotten the right opportunities for them so i will say that the guys that scott perry decided to roll the dice on this season i think it's a good collection of guys and and i think i think just accidentally the knicks will be better than they were last season <laughs> well <laughs> one it would be tough to be worse um, <laughs> uh, and and two i think that's it's a good place to playoffs. Playoffs? <laughs> no, no, I ain't going that far, but I mean they, they they'll have a chance to do something, and you know Fisdale Fisdale's going to have to earn his money, you know, and we'll see. But I will tell you, I will be watching because I'm curious to see how this all comes together. Well, uh, that makes two of us. Um, <laughs> I will be watching as well. Um, I you know, and and I have to be honest with the listeners, I. I do all my writing because I'm I'm in it for the Louis Vuitton bags. Uh, as well. that's, <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing these pods. Uh, just, I'm just waiting for one to show up in the mail one day. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I got lucky. Um, Moak, uh, you I always just are fantastic in in that you you really are honest. You don't pull any punches, but at the same time, you're fair. And uh, I say it. I say it all the time. That's all Knicks fans want. Knicks fans don't need smoke blowing up their asses. Um, they just want good, clean, fair coverage, and you consistently provide that. And um, you know, I just want to thank you again for for all that you do. It's uh, it's a breath of fresh air. Jonathan, I truly appreciate those kind words. And you know, since I got in the game, that was always really my aim and my goal. You know, was to kind of just you know be in the middle and you know just try to provide perspective and. You know, the fact that you feel that that I do that for you and for your audience, it, uh, it means a lot to me. So thanks a lot for having me on. And, um, you know, feel free to hit me up anytime you need. I definitely will uh, at some point during the season. But uh, you have uh, some wedding planning to continue, so I'm going to let you do that. That is true. Congratulations again. And um, to everybody out there tuning in, uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Uh, we will have, uh, like I've been saying, another episode or two over the course of the summer. And then um, we'll hit the ground running um, before training camp. So thanks, everybody, and have a great weekend. See you.